Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 440. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Sorry about last week. We were, if some, hopefully some of you noticed that we weren't here last week. It's all to do with the, 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 back, the back side of the sofa. We're trying to get the back engines all kind of geared up, ready for this transformation into kind of getting adverts and all going down that line. And I thought it would be happening this week. But it's still we're still in this kind of little limbo state, just if anyone's interested in this, because... Basically, because the Starship so far, she, it is a it is a big ship, you know. <laughs> She's got a lot of baggage, you know. It's like you say, four hundred and forty shows have got to be basically moved, handballed, as we say, handballed from Libsyn to Acast, which is where we're going to kind of host the shows. So, and we're doing it for Tales to Terrify and Far Fetch Fables. So, you know, there's there's quite a few. You know, I'm, I'm guessing there's probably. 700, you know, all told, maybe more, 800 shows all told on the District of Wonders that I've got to, you know, be transferred over. So that's downloaded and then uploaded. So that's where we are at the moment. And I thought it was all going to happen last week, but it never. So we're going to carry on this week anyway. I would probably could have done with missing this week's show. The house is, in, <laughs> the house is just wrecked. We're getting, I've been, all, I've been in limbo decorating the halls. And we're getting the halls, it sounds like, it's like the halls, Harry Potter, no, no, the, the hall, just upstairs and downstairs, and we're getting it all tiled, and the tilers here are there now, and it's just like, dust, that dust hell, do you know what I mean, cutting and, oh man, it's just, it comes, crack a door and leaves, you know, late on, and it's just, it's over five minutes now, you know what I mean? The, the kids are all coming back in five minutes, so Ari's come back from school. So oh, I'm waffling here, I'm waffling. Anyway, what story, man. I'll tell you what's coming into today's show. We have Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. But before that, we have a fantastic bit of fiction by Joe R. Lansdale. Hey, man, come on, well done. Big round of applause for Jeremy, our editor there, who have tirelessly chained to the computer getting stories. Massive, massive. Thank you very much, Jeremy. So I'll give you a little heads up, then we'll get straight into the, the main fiction. And like I say, it is The Wizard of Trees by Joe R. Lansdale. Originally published in Old Venus, edited by George R. Martin and Gunnar Doswas. Champion Mojo storyteller Joe R. Lansdale is the author of more than 40, 40 novels, man. Come on, and numerous short stories. His work has appeared in national anthologies, magazines and collections, as well as numerous foreign publications. He's written for comic television, film, newspaper and internet sites. His work has been collected in more than two dozen, two dozen short story collections and he has edited or co-edited more than a dozen anthologies. 
He is the recipient of the Edgar Award, eight Bram Stoker Awards, the Horror Writers Association Lifetime Achievement Award, the British Fantasy Award, the Inkpot Award for Contributions to Science Fiction and Fantasy, and a recipient of the Spur Award for Best Historical Western Novel, plus many, many more. His novella, Bubba Hotep, was adapted for film by Don Coscarelli, and the film's adaptation of the novel Cold in July was nominated for a Grand Jury Prize at the Sun Sundance Film Festival. A television series based on his Lap and Leonard novels debuted recently on Sundance TV, and I've seen them as well. Put a link on Jeremy's kind of put a link on for Joe Lansdale. Pop over there and just say you know say hello or just check out his site. Just fantastic, man. Do you know what I mean? Guess who this story's narrated by? <laughs> yes. None other than our very own editor, Mr. Jeremy Sal. And Jeremy told us, you know, he sent it off to narrate. It didn't, you know, it did. It didn't happen. He sent it off somewhere. It didn't happen again. And he thought, bloody hell, man. You know, give us the fucking mic here. So we've got Jeremy on the mic as well. And if anyone didn't know, and it's actually nice to kind of find out a little bit more about Jeremy, born in 1995. Man, how are you? Jerry? <laughs> no, knows why I'm laughing, because just a young kid, man. Just a bobby. Born in 1995 with a twisted sense of humour and a taste for cra- craft beers at your age, young man. You should be having sherbet and lollipops. And cold weather, he says. Jeremy Sal's work has appeared in Nature, Nature Physics, Abyss and Apex, Lightspeed, Strange Horizons, Drabblecast and others. His work has appeared in audio and has been translated in Arabic, Polish and Chinese. In 2015, he was a finalist for The Writers of the Future and produced a short film that has currently been screened in film festivals around the world. He is also the fiction editor for a shoddy little podcast you probably haven't heard of called The Starship Sopa. He has managed to acquire useless B in film studies and creative writing, has plans for world domination, but is too busy watching foreign films and travelling to really get any plan in motion. He craves out a living in Sydney, Australia. People know his brain at, and there's a link there to Jeremy's Twitter feed or his site as well, and go over and say hello to Jeremy. What a lovely lad. And like I said, straight already, at that young age, he's got credentials. Do you know what I mean? He's, he might be a little pup to be there, but he's certainly racked up some kind of quality acceptance stories there wow man go on jeremy i still think he's gonna be one of the bright editors out there as well it's funny i was having to mention the chat with him as well where I, I think i interviewed a while ago christine catherine rush and it was someone told her you can either be a great writer or a great editor do you know what i mean it's hard to be the you know one or the other and she chose to, to do writing and i guess when you think my little joel lansdale there He's done both, so possibly, Jeremy, possibly, sir, you could stick at both. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Wizard of the Trees, by Joao Lansdale. Narrated by Jeremy Zal. I am here because of a terrible headache. I know you will want more of an explanation than that, but I can't give it to you. I can only say I was almost killed when the great ship Titanic went down. There was an explosion, a boiler blowing, perhaps. I can't say. When the ship dove down and broke in half, 
I felt as if a broken half with it. An object hit me in the head underwater. I remember there was something down there with me. Not anyone on the ship, not a corpse, but something. I remember its face, if you can call it that, full of teeth and eyes, big and luminous, lit up by a light from below. Then I was gasping water into my lungs, and this thing was pulling me toward a glowing pool of whirling illumination. It dragged me into its warmth and into light, and my last sight of the thing was a flipping of its fish-like tail, and then my head exploded. Or so it seemed. When I awoke, I was lying in a warm, muddy mire, almost floating, almost sinking. I grabbed some roots jutting out from the shoreline and pulled myself out of it. I lay there with my headache for a while, warming myself in the sunlight. Then the headache began to pass. I rolled over on my belly and looked at the pool of mud. It was a big pool. In fact, pool is incorrect. It was like a great lake of mud. I have no idea how I managed to be there, but that is the simple truth of it. I still don't know. It felt like a dream. With some difficulty, I had managed to bunk in the steerage in the Titanic, heading back home to my country, the United States of America. I played out my string in England. I thought I might go back and journey out west where I had punched cows and shot buffalo for the railroad. I had even killed a couple of men in self-defense, and dime novels hadn't been written about me. The black rider of the plains. But that was mostly lies. The only thing they got right was the color of my skin. I'm half black, half Cherokee. In the dime novels, I was described as mostly white, which is a serious lie. One look at me will tell you different. I was a rough rider with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, and when it would arrive in England to perform, when they went back, I had stayed on. I liked it for a while, but as I say, there's no place like home. Not that I really had one, but was speaking generally here. I struggled to my feet and looked around. Besides a lake of mud, there were trees, and I do mean trees. They rose up tall and mighty all around the lake, and there didn't seem to be anything to do but go among them. Mud I wouldn't go back into. I couldn't figure out what had happened to me, what had grabbed me and pulled me into that glowing whirlpool, but the idea of laying a grip on me again was far less than inviting. It had hauled me here, wherever he was, and had retreated, left me to my own devices. The mud I had ended up in was shallow, but I knew the rest of the lake wasn't. I knew this because as I looked out over the vast mire, I saw a great beast moving through it, a lizard, I guess you'd call it. At least that was my first thought. Then I remembered the bones I'd found back in Montana a couple of years back, and how they were called dinosaurs. I read up a little about it, and that's when I thought when I saw this thing in the mud, rising up grey and green of skin, lurching up and dripping down, dripping mud that plopped bright in the sunlight. Down it went, out of sight, and up again. And when it came back up a third time, it had a beast in its mouth. A kind of giant, slick, purple-skinned seal, its blood oozing like strawberry jam out from between the monster's teeth. It may seem as if I'm nonchalant about all this, but the truth is, I'm telling this well after the fact and have time to accept it. But let me jump ahead a bit. The world I am on is Venus, and now it is my world. My rival was not the only mystery. I'm a man of 45, and in good shape. 
and I like to think sound of mind. But good as I felt at that age, I felt even better here on this warm, damp, tree-covered world. I would soon discover that there was an even greater mystery I could not uncover, but I will come to that even if I will not arrive at a true explanation. I pulled off my clothes, which were caked with mud, and shook them out. I had lost both my shoes when the ship went down. They had been sucked off me by the ocean's waters with the same enthusiasm as a kid sucking a peppermint stick. I stood naked with my clothes under my arm, my body covered in mud, my hair matted with it. I must have looked pretty foolish, but there I was with my muddy clothes and nowhere to go. I glanced back at the muddy lake, saw the great lizard and his lunch were gone. The muddy lake, out in the center, a bit to boil. My guess was that it was hot in the middle, warm at the edges. My host, the thing that had brought me here, had fortunately chosen one of the warmer areas for me to surface. I picked a wide path between the trees and took to the trail. It was shadowy on the path. I suppose it had been made by animals, and from the prints, some of them very large. Had I gone off too far from the path, I could have easily waded into darkness. There was little to no bush beneath the trees, and because there was not enough sunlight to feed them. Unusual birds and undefinable critters flitted and leaped about in the trees, and raced across my trail. I walked on for some time with no plan, no shoes, and my clothes tucked neatly under my arm like a pet dog. Now, if you think I was baffled, you are quite correct. For a while, I tried to figure out what had nabbed me under the waters and taken me through the whirling light and left me almost out of the mud, then disappeared. No answers presented themselves, and I let it go and set my thoughts to survival. I can do that. I have a practical streak. One of the most practical things was I was still alive, wherever I was. I had survived in the wilderness before. I had gone up into the Rocky Mountains in the dead of winter with nothing but a rifle, a knife, and a small bag of possible. I had survived, come down in the spring with beaver and fox furs to sell. I figured I could do that. I could make it here as well. Though later on, I will confess to an occasional doubt. I had had some close calls before, including a run-in with Watt Earp that almost turned ugly, a run-in with Johnny Ringo that left him dead under a tree, and a few things not worth mentioning. But this world made all those adventures look mild. Wandering in among the trees, my belly began to gnaw, and I figured I'd best find something I could eat, so I began looking about. Up in the trees near where I stood, there were great balls of purple fruit, and birds about my size, multicolored and feathered, with beaks like daggers. They were picking at those fruits. I figured if they could eat them, so could I. My next order of business was to shimmy up one of those trees and lay hold of my next meal. I put my clothes under it, the trunk of which was as big around as a locomotive, grabbed a low-hanging limb, and scuttled up to where I could see a hanging fruit about the size of a buffalo's head. It proved an easy climb because the limbs were so broad and so plentiful. The birds above me noticed my arrival but ignored me. I crawled out on the limb bearing my chosen meal, got hold of it, and yanked it loose, nearly sending myself off the limb in the process. It would have been a good and hard fall, but I'd like to think that all that soft earth down there, padded with loam, leaves, and rot, would have given me a soft landing. I got my back against a tree trunk. 
took hold of the fruit and tried to bite into it. It was as hard as leather. I looked about. There was a small, broken limb jutting out above me. I stood on my perch, lifted the fruit, and slammed it into where the limb was broke off. It stuck there, like a fat tick with a knife through it. Juice started gushing out from the fruit. I lifted my face below it and let the nectar flood into my mouth and splash over me. It was somewhat sour and tangy in taste, but I was convinced that if it didn't poison me, I wouldn't die of hunger. I dug down the fruit until it ripped apart. Inside it was pithy and good to eat. I scooped it out with my hands and filled up on it. I just finished my repast when above me heard a noise, and when I looked up, what I saw was to me the most amazing sight yet in this wild new world. Silver. A bird? But no. It was a kind of flying sled. I heard it before I saw it. A hum like a giant bee. And when I looked out at the sunlight glinted off it, blinding me for a moment. When I looked back, the sled tore through the trees, spun about, and came to light with a smack in the fork of the massive limb. It wasn't at an angle. I could see there were seats on the sled, and there were people on the seats. And there was a kind of shield of glass at the front of the craft. My occupants were all black of hair and yellow of skin, but my amazement at this was nothing compared to what happened to me next. Another craft, similar in nature, came shining into view. It glided into a stop, gentle and swift like a gas-filled balloon. It floated in the air next to the limb where the others had come to a stop. It was directed by a man sitting in an open seat who was like the others in the machine, a man with yellow skin and black hair. Another man, similar in appearance, sat behind him. His biggest distinction, a large blue-green half-moon jewel in a chain hung around his neck. This fellow leaped to his feet, revealing him nude other than for the sword harness and the medallion, drew a thin sword strapped across his back, dropped down to the craft and started hacking at the driver, who barely staggered to his feet in time to defend himself. The warrior's swords clanged together. The other two occupants of the wrecked craft had climbed out of the wells of the seats with drawn swords and were about to come to the comrade's aid when something even more fantastic occurred. Flapping down from the sky were half a dozen winged men carrying swords and battle axes. Except for the harness that would serve to hold their weapons and a small, hard, leather-looking pouch, they, like the others, were their clothes. Their eyes were somewhat to the side of their heads where their beak-like growths jutting from their faces, and their skin was milk-white, and instead of hair were feathers. The colours of the feathers were varied. Their targets were the yellow men in the shiny machine on the tremendous tree limb. It became clear then that the men with the necklace, though obviously not of the winged breed, was no doubt on their side. He skillfully dueled with the driver of the limb Beechcraft, parried deftly, and then with a shout, ran his sword through his opponent's chest. The mortally wounded warrior dropped his weapon and fell backward off his foe's sword, collapsed across the fore of his vessel. The two warriors in league with the dead man were fighting valiantly, but the numbers again seemed overwhelming. The man with the medallion, or amulet, stood on the fore of the craft, straddling the carcass of his kill, and it was then that I got a clear view of his face. It has been said and normally I don't believe it, that you can't judge someone by his appearance. But I tell you that I have never seen anyone with such an evil countenance as this man.
It wasn't that his features were all that unusual, but there was an air about him that projected pure villainy. It was as if there was another person inside of him, one black of heart and devious of mind, and it seemed that spectral person was trying to pressure itself to the surface. I have never before or since had that feeling about anyone, not even Comanche and Apache warriors who had tried to kill me during my service with the Buffalo Soldiers. It was then that one of the two defenders, having driven back a winged warrior that he had been dueling with, pulled with his free hand a pistol. It was a crude-looking thing, reminiscent of an old flintlock. The pistol's bark was like the cough of a turbulent man. The winged man spouted blood, dropped his sword, brought both hands to his face, then relaxed and fell, diving headfirst like a dart. As the winged man dove between the limbs near me, crashed through some trees and plummeted to the ground, a sword he dropped struck conveniently in the limb before me. I took hold of it thinking now that I had a weapon for self-defense, and now it was a good time to depart. I told myself that this fight, whatever it was about, was not my fight. They were so busy with one another, I had not even been seen. So, of course, casting aside common sense, I decided I had to get into the thick of it. It might well have been the fact that the men in the craft were outnumbered, but I must admit that one glance at the man with the jeweled medallion and I knew where my sentience lay. I know how that sounds, but I assure you, had you seen his face, you would have felt exactly the same way. Why I thought one more sword would make a difference, considering the horde of the wingmen assisting the evil-faced man was enormous, I can't explain to you. But with the thin, light sword in my teeth, I began to climb upward to aid them. This is where I realized certain things, certain abilities that I had since upon arrival, but were now proving to be true. I felt strong, agile, not only as I might have felt twenty years earlier, but in a manner I had never experienced. I moved easily, squirrel-like is what I thought, and in no time reached the craft caught between the fork of the limb. The wingmen were fluttering about like the two survivors like flies and spilled molasses. The man with the necklace had paused to watch, no longer feeling the need to engage. He observed as his birds flapped and cawed and swung the weapons at his own kind. It was then that he saw me, rising up over the lip of the limb, finding my feet. I removed the sword from my teeth and sprang forward with a stabbing motion, piercing the heart of one of the winged attackers. It spluttered, twisted, and fell. The yellow-skinned people glanced at me, but accepted my help without question or protest for obvious reasons. I must have been a sight, naked, having left my clothes at the base of the great tree, my skin and hair matted with mud. I looked like a wild man. And it was in that moment I noticed something that I have no- should have noticed right off, but in the positioning and the leaves and the smaller limbs of the tree had blocked my complete view. One of the yellow skins was a woman. She was lean and long and her hair was in a rough cut, as if someone had just gathered up in a wad and chopped it up with a knife at her shoulders. She was not nude as her opponents were. She wore, as did her companion, a sort of black skirt and a light covering of black leather breast armor. She had a delicate but unquestionably feminine shape. When I saw her face, I almost forgot what I was doing. 
Their bright green, almond-shaped eyes sucked me into them. I was so nearly lost in them that a wingman with an axe nearly took my head off. I ducked the axe swing, lunged forward, stretching my leg way out, thrusting with my sword, sticking him in the gut. When I pulled my sword back, his gut spilled out along with a gush of blood. As if fell out of view, more of the things came down from the sky and buzzed around us, beating their wings. There were plenty, but it was soon obvious our skills with weapons were superior to theirs. They used the swords and axes crudely. They handled them with less skill than a child with a mop and a broom. My partners, such as they were, were well versed in the use of the blade, as was I, having learned swordsmanship from an older man while I was among buffalo soldiers. My teacher was a black man, like me, and had once lived in France. There he had been trained well in the use of steel, and I in turn had learned the skill from him. So it was not surprising that in short order we had killed most of our attackers and sent the others soaring away in fear. The necklace-wearing man, the one who had been observing, now joined in, attempting to take me out of the fray, and I had gauged him. He was good with the sword, quick, but I was quicker and more skilled, blessed with whatever strange abilities his world gave me. He caused me a moment's trouble, but it only took me a few parries to grasp his method, which was not too unlike my own. He caused me a moment's trouble, but it only took me a few parries to grasp his method, which was not too unlike my own. A high and low attack, a way of using the eyes to mislead the opponent. I was gradually getting the better of him when the driver coasted his machine next to the limb. My opponent gave out with a wild cry, came at me with a surge of renewed energy, driving me back slightly. Then he wheeled, leaped onto his machine, and slid quickly into his seat, smooth as a woman slipping slick fingers into a calfskin glove. The sled with the two yellow men in it darted away. I had turned, lowered my bloodstained blade, and looked at those whose side I had joined. The woman spoke, and her words, though simple, hit me like a train. She said, Thank you. It was another side effect my arrival here. I was not only stronger and more agile, I could understand a language I had never heard before. As soon as the words left her mouth, I translated in my head. It was so immediate, it was as if the language were my native tongue. You're welcome, I said. It seemed a trite thing to say, me standing there on a limb holding a sword, mud-covered and naked with my business hanging out, but I was even more astonished to have my words understood by her without any true awareness that I was speaking my own language. Who are you? the woman asked. Jack Davis, I said, formerly of the United States Buffalo Soldiers. The United States? she asked. It's a bit hard to explain. You are covered in mud, the man said, sheathing his sword. You are correct, I said. I decided to keep it simple. I fell into a mud lake. The man grinned. That must have took some doing. I consider myself a man of special talents, I said. The young woman turned her head in a curious fashion, glanced down at me. Is your skin black, or is it painted? I realized what part of me she was studying. Under all that mud, I had been Irish and not part Negro. My blush would have been as bright as the sinking sun. Before long, it would become obvious to me that on this world, nudity was not something shameful or indecent in their minds. Clothes for them were ornaments, 
or designed to protect them from the weather, but they were not bothered by the sight of flesh. Correct, I said. I am black, very much so. We have heard of black men, she said. We have never seen them. Are there others like me? I said. We have heard that this is so, said the woman, in the far south, although I suspect that they are less muddy. Again, said the man, we thank you. We are very much outnumbered, and your sword was appreciated. You seem to be doing well without me, but I was glad to help, I said. You flatter us, he said. I am Devil, and this is my sister, Gerald. I nodded at them. By this time, Devil had turned down to the sled and to the dead man lying on his front, bleeding. He bent down and touched his face. Bendel is dead by Toro's hand, the traitor. I'm sorry, I said. He was a warrior, and there was nothing else to say, said Gerald. But she and Devil, despite the matter-of-fact tone, were obviously hurt and moved. That's why what happened next was so surprising. Devil dragged the corpse to the edge of the sled, then the limb, and then without ceremony flipped it over the side. To the soil again, he said. This seemed more than unusual and disrespectful, but I was later to learn that this is their custom. When one of the number dies, and since they live in high cities and populate the trees, this is a common method. If they die on the ground, they are left where they are. This treatment was considered an honour. I processed this slowly, but kept my composure. My survival might depend on it. I said, May I ask who these men were and why they were trying to kill you? Gerald glanced at Devil, said, He chose to help us with that question. He bonded to us in blood. True, said Devil, but I could tell he wasn't convinced. Gerald, however, decided to speak. They are Varnan, and we are warriors of Sheldon, prince and princess, actually. We are going to the country in pursuit of the talisman. You're warring over a trinklet, I said. It's far more than a trinklet, she said. And since there are only us two, it is hardly a war. I would call in reinforcements. She nodded. If there were time, but there is not. She did not elaborate. We lifted her that for the time being and set about releasing the silver craft from the limbs where it had lodged. This seemed like a precarious job to me, but I helped them do it. The craft proved light as air. When it came loose to the limbs but it didn't fall began to hum and float. Devil climbed into the front seat position where the dead man had been, touched a silver rod, and the machine hummed louder than before. Gerald climbed into one of the seats behind him, said, Come with us. Daryl glanced at her. We can't leave him, she said. He looks to be lost. You have no idea, I said. And he helped us when we needed it she said. He risked his life. We have our mission, he said. We will find a safe place for him, she said. We still have a long distance to go. We cannot just abandon him. This discussion had gone on as if I was not standing there. I said, I would appreciate your taking me somewhere other than this tree. Devil nodded. 
but I could tell he wasn't entirely convinced. I stepped into the machine, took a seat. Devil looked back at me. I could tell this was a development he was not fond of, in spite of the fact that I had taken the side in the fight. But he said nothing. He turned forward, touched the rod. Machine growled softly, glided away through the cluster of trees and limbs. I ducked so as not to be struck by them. When I looked up, the machine had risen high in the sky, above the tree line, up into the sunny blue. I was astonished. It was such a delicate and agile craft, so far ahead of what we had achieved back home. Interestingly enough, their understanding of firearms was far behind ours. There was a part of me that felt as if it would be nice if it stayed that way. It seemed humans and birdmen were quite capable of doing enough damage with swords and axes. As for the pistol the devil had fired, he had discarded it as if it had been nothing more than a worn-out handkerchief. I glanced over the side, saw below all manners of creatures. There were huge, leather-winged monsters flying beneath us and in the clear areas beneath the trees. On the ground on the rare open spaces, I could see the monstrous lizards of assorted colours. The beast looked up at the sound of a humming machine, the mouths falling open as if in surprise, revealing great rows of massive teeth. We passed over hot, muddy lakes boiling and churning with heat. Huge snakes slithered through the mud and onto land and into the trees. It was a beautiful and frightening. In a short time, I had survived the sinking of a great ocean liner, an uncommon rival in the hot lake mud, climbed a tree to eat, found a fight against a yellow man with a strange talisman who was assisted by winged creatures, and had taken sides in the fight. Now, here I was, lost and confused, flying above massive trees in a feather-like craft at the tremendous speed, my body feeling more amazing than ever, as if someone had split open my skin and stuck a twenty-year-old inside me. It made my head spin. Where exactly are you going? I had to raise my voice to be heard above the wind. Perhaps it is best we do not speak of it, said Devil. You aided us, but our mission is personal. You know what you know about the talisman and need to know no more. Understood, but where are you taking me? I am uncertain, Devil said. Very well, I said not wishing to be put out of the craft and left to my own devices. I needed to try and stay with them for as long as I could to learn more about this world. Here was better than wandering the forest below, how much better off remained to be seen. As an old sergeant told me around a word of chewing tobacco once, if you ain't dead, you're living, and that's a good thing. It was one of those few bits of advice he'd given me that I'd taken to heart as if he was always jealous of my education, which he called white man's talk. I'd been best with a Cherokee mother who had learned reading and writing in white man's schools and become a teacher. She always said education didn't belong to anyone other than the one who was willing to take it. She also said education was much more than words and marks on paper. Showed me the customs of the Cherokee, taught me tracking about the living in the wild, all things I might need to survive. That said, I preferred the comfort of the flying said to the rawness of the wild world below. This way I had time to consider and plan, though I must admit my considerations and planning were not accomplishing a lot. It was more as if the wheels were spinning inside my head, but I couldn't gain traction. 
Besides, let me be entirely honest. The woman was why I wanted to remain. I was smitten. Those green eyes were like cool pools and I wanted to dive right into them. I wanted to believe that there had been some kind of connection on her part, but considering my current appearance, the only person or thing that might love me was a hog that had mistaken me for a puddle to wallow in. I can't say for how long we flew, but I feel certain it was ours. I know that exhaustion claimed me after a while, the cool wind blowing against me, me snug in my seat. I might have felt better and stronger, but I had swum in the cold ocean, pulled myself from a hot mud pit, climbed a great tree, and fought a great fight. So I was tired. I drifted to sleep for a while. When I awoke, the sun had dipped low in the sky, and so had we. We were coasting down between the large gaps in the great trees. We came to trees so huge they would have dwarfed the redwoods of home. There was even one with shadowy gaps in it the size of small caves. That's when I saw that nearly all the trees had large gaps in them, from head to foot. It was part of their natural construct. As the sun finally set, we flew into one of those tight wooden carvings. Devil parked his airship and we stepped out. The night was as dark as the inside of a hole. No moon was visible. What stars there were had made a thin light. But then, as I stood there looking out of the gap, soaking in the night, an amazing thing happened. It was as if there was suddenly dust in the air, and the dust glowed. I was confused for a moment, then some of the dust landed on me. It wasn't dust at all but little bugs that were as silver as a flying sled, shinier. The entire night was filled with them. They gave a glow to everything, bright as a missing moonlight. I should pause here and jump ahead with something I later learned. There was no moonlight because there was no moon. This world was without one. Of all the things I had trouble getting used to, that was the one that most pained me. No bright coin of glide coasting along in this night sky. In place of it were glowing insects, lovely in their own way, but they could not replace in my mind the moon that encircled Earth. Gerald pulled a length of dark cloth from inside a container in the craft, fastened it to the top and bottom of our carbon. It stuck to where she put it without the bottom or brace or tack in spike. The cloth was the same colour as the tree we were in. I realised immediately that at night, and perhaps in the day at a decent distance, it would appear to be a solid part of the tree. We were concealed. There were cloaks inside the craft's container, red and thick. Gerald gave Devil one, me one, and took one for herself. She turned on a small lamp inside the craft. The source of its power, I assumed, was some kind of storage battery. It lit up the interior of our cavern quite comfortably. Gerald broke out some food stops and although I couldn't identify what she gave me, except for a container of water, I lit into that chow like it was my last meal. For all I knew, it was. It wasn't good, but it wasn't bad either. Before long, Devil lay down and pulled his cloak over him and fell asleep. I was near that point myself, but I could tell Gerald wanted to talk, and she was interested in me. She began with a few simple questions, most of which I couldn't answer. I told her about the great ocean line and what had happened to me, how I thought I might be in a dream. She assured me that this was real and not a dream. When she laughed a little, 
the way she laughed, sweet and musical. It assured me my ears were hearing a real voice, and my eyes were seeing a strange and rare beauty. Gerald tried her best to explain to me where I was. Gerald tried her best to explain to me where I was. She called the world she knew Sun Sun. She took a slate from the graph with a marker, drew a crude carving of the sun, and placed her planet two places from it. I knew enough basic astronomy to know she was talking about the planet we called Venus. I learned there was only one language on Sun Sun, and everyone spoke it, with varying degrees of accents according to region. I told her about the moon I missed, and she laughed, saying such a thing seemed odd to her, and that it was impossible for her to grasp what it was I so sorely missed. After a time, she opened up the back of the sled and took out a large container of water. She also found a cloth and gave that to me to clean up with. I was nervous, wiping myself down in front of her, but as she seemed disinterested, I went about it. Running water through my hair and fingers, wiping myself clean as possible with what was provided. When I was nearly finished, I caught her eye appraising me. She was more interested than I had first thought. I don't know why, but Gerald took me into her confidence. Had Devil been awake, I don't know she would have. But I could tell she trusted me. It was an immediate bond. I have heard of and read such things, but never believed them until then. Love at first sight was always a romantic writer's foolishness to me. But now, I saw an idea in an entirely new light, even if it was light from a battery. Torto has taken our half of the talisman, she said. The other half is in the city of the Birdmen. Once it is whole and its powers gave the Birdmen a great advantage against us. Our people warred constantly against them. We had no real land to call our own. We moved among the trees, for we could not defend ourselves in well in a direct fight against the birdmen, not with them having both halves of the talisman and aided by wings. Where does it come from? I said. What does it do? I can only speak of legend. The halves have been separated a long time. One half was with our people, the others with theirs. It is said that in the far past of the two tribes, weary of war, divided the talisman. This was not something the birdmen had to do, as they were winning the conflict, and we would not have lasted. But their warrior king, Darrett, felt we could live together. Against the advice of the case council, he gave our people one half of the talisman and kept the other. Divided, it is powerless. United, it was a dangerous tool of war. No one remembers how it was made, or what it was made of, or even what powers it possesses. When Darrett died, the tradition of peace carried on for many years with different rulers, but then the recent king of the Birdmen, Canrad, was of a different mind. After many generations, he wanted the lost power back. And one of your people, Tordo, betrayed you, I said. Gerald nodded. He was a priest. It was his job to protect our half of the talisman. It was kept in a house of worship. You worship half of the talisman? Not the talisman, the peace it gives us. Peace from the birdmen, anyway. There are others who war against us, but they are less powerful. The birdmen could be a true threat. It surprises me that Canaran has taken this approach. Peace between us has worked for so long. What we are trying to do is stop Tordo before he delivers our half of the talisman. 
my father, King Ran, sent us. We did not want to alarm our people. We thought to overtake the thief swiftly, as we got news of his treachery immediately, Tordo's and of that of the lesser priest, the one who was with him in the flyer. But it turned out Tordo was prepared for our pursuits. His actions hadn't been of the moment. They were long prepared. He had the wingmen waiting. An assistant given him by King Canrad. Toro knows how my father thinks, knew he could try to catch him with as little alarm as possible by using a smaller force. He knew this because Tordo is my father's brother, our uncle. Betrayed by family, I said. There isn't much worse. We could go back and raise an army, but it would be too late. Two days and he will be in the city of the Varnin, and they will have both pieces of the talisman in all of its power. Seems to me, that being the case, you should have flown all night. Gerald grimanced. You may be telling the truth about being from another world. You doubt me? I asked. She smiled, and it was brighter than the light from the battery. I melted like butter on a hot skillet. Let me show you why we do not fly at night. Why no one in his right mind does. She took hold of the cloth she had placed over the entrance to the tree cave, tugged it loose at one edge, and said, Come look. I looked, and what I saw astonished me. The sky was bright with the glowing insects, thicker than before. The light showed me the sky was also full of bat great bat-like creatures, swooping this way and that. They were the size of Konestoga wagons, but moved more lightly than the flying sled. They were snapping and devouring the shiny bugs in large bites, gulping thousands at a time. Fly at night, and they will make sure you do not fly for long. We call them night wings. They rule the sky from solid dark until near the first light. Then they will go away, far beyond the trees and into the mountains where they dwell. This means your uncle has to stop for the night as well, I said. Exactly, she said. When the night wings depart in the early morning, we will start out again, hope to catch up with them. They don't have a tremendous lead, but it's late enough that they are able to arrive at the city of Varnin and my uncle delivers a talisman. Were you and your uncle ever close? Close, she said. No, he was not close to my father. He felt he should have had his place of rule. My guess is he hopes to do just that under the agreement of the Canada of Varnin. He would rather rule with a cloud over his head than not rule at all. I would like to assist you. I have a good sword arm. I can help you stop your uncle. I pledge my allegiance to you. Gerald grinned when I said that. I accept, she said. But devil must accept as well. That sounds good to me, I said. For now, let us rest. We took our cloaks, searched out on the floor of our wooden cave. I tried to sleep, and thought I would have no trouble, exhausted as I was. But I merely dozed. Then I would awake, thinking I was fighting the waters of the great Atlantic, only to find I was indeed on Venus, sleeping in a tree, and sleeping not far away was the most beautiful and enticing woman I had ever known. I was up when Gerald and Devil rose. It was partially dark, but some light was creeping through the cloth over the gap in the tree. Gerald pulled it loose, and the beginnings of early morning seep in. 
Jarl and Devil moved to an area of our cave away from me and whispered. As they did, Devil would glance at me from time to time. His face was a mixture of emotions. None of them appeared to be amused. After a moment, Devil came to me and said, Devil trusts you. I feel I must. Her judgment is generally sound. I assure you, I said, I am trustworthy. Words are easy, but you will have your chance to prove your loyalty, he said. Don't let us down. Did I let you down in the fight? No. But what we face from here on out will be much worse. It will try all of us. That put me to the test, I said. We flew away from the tree and into the morning sky. As we went, the sun grew large and the sky grew bright. The glowing bugs were long gone to wherever they go, some in the gullet to the night flies, and the hungry bats were long gone as well. We sailed on into the bright light, and before long it was less bright and the clouds above were dark and plump with rain. Finally, the rain came, and it came hard and fast, meant to flood the seats on the craft. Devil guided our flying sled down and under the lower limbs of the trees. We dodged in between them swiftly, and close to the limbs for that a moment looked like the inevitable crash sites. But he avoided them, flicked us through the cluster of the leaves, and then down a series of trees that were smaller in height of the others, yet wide and numerous of branch, with leaves so thick the rain could hardly get through. It was as if a great umbrella had been thrown over us. As we went, the sky darkened more, and the rain hammered the trees and shook the leaves, Random drops seeped through. Then came the lightning, sizzling across the sky with great gongs of thunder. There was a great crack and a flash, a hum of electricity, and a monstrous limb fell out from one of the trees. The lightning, as if seeking us out for dodging us rain, flicked down through a gap in the larger trees and hit one of the smaller ones just before we glided under it. A spot on the limb burst into a great ball of flame, and there was an explosion of wood. It struck the front of the craft, hit so hard it was as if a great hand had taken hold of the front of the flying machine and flung it to the ground. Fortunately, we were not flying high at the time, but it was still a vicious drop. Had it not been for the sentry's build-up of loam from leaves and needles and rotting fruit to cushion a fall, we would have been burst apart like a tossed china cup. We smacked the ground hard enough to rattle our teeth. The machine skidded through the loam like a plough breaking a field. It went along like that for a great distance between the trees, and hit something solid that caused us to veer hard left and wreck against the trunk of one of the smaller trees. It was such an impact that for a long moment I was dazed. When I gathered my thoughts and put them into some reasonable shape of understanding, I examined my surroundings. I was in the middle seat of the flying sled, devil ahead of me, Gerald behind. But she wasn't. She was missing. I struggled out of my seat, got close up to Devil. He wasn't moving. He couldn't. He was dead. A short limb jutting out from the tree had been driven securely through his chest, bursting his heart. His body was painted in blood. I fell off the crumpled craft, landed on the ground, and started to crawl. When I got enough strength back to manage my feet under me, I searched around for Gerald, screamed her name. Here, she said. I turned, saw her rising up from behind a pile of leaves and branches. She was scratched up, but from where I stood she looked well enough, all things considered. 
When I got to her, she surprised me by taking me into her arms, clutching me to me. Devil? she asked. I gently freed myself from her embrace, shook my head. She made a squeaking noise and fell to her knees. I squatted beside her, held her as she shook and cried. As if to mock us, the sky grew light and the rain stopped. The world took on a pleasant emerald glow. I was still astonished to find that at death, all that was done in way of ceremony was that the dead were placed on the ground. I assumed that in the humid air of Venus, aided by insects and internal decay, bodies would soon lose their flesh and find their way into the soil. But it was still disconcerting to see Devil pulled from the machine by Gerald, stretched out on the soil to be left. Gerald wept over him, violently. Then she was through. She left him, as she said, to become one with the all. I convinced her to stretch his cloak over him, though she thought it was a waste of material. I know how this makes her sound, but I assure you this was custom. I guess it was a little bit similar to some American Indian tribes leaving the corpses of the dead on platforms to be consumed by time and elements. We travelled forward. The sky had completely cleared and the storm had moved on. We could hear it in the distance, roaring at the trees and the sky. I don't know how long we walked, but finally we came to a clearing in the wilderness, and in that clearing were mounds of giant bones. Some of them were fresh enough that the stinking flesh clung to them, others had almost disappeared into the ground itself. Teeth gleamed in the sunlight. In the distance, the dark rain clouds moved as if stalking something. Lightning flashed and thunder rolled on the wind side. It's a kind of graveyard for the giant beasts. Redo. It's a kind of graveyard for the great beasts, Gerald said, looking around. It was indeed. It went on for, I estimate, to be ten or fifteen miles long, a half mile wide. We had brought some supplies from the crippled flying slit with us, and we found the shade of some very large and well-aged bones, set down in the shade the bones made, ignored the smell of the still-rotting flesh, and ate our lunch. It was an odd place for a meal, but our stamina had played out. We sat and Joel talked about devil. It was minor stuff, really. Childhood memories, some of it funny, some of it poignant, some of it just odd, but all of it loving. She talked for quite a while. When our strength was renewed, we continued. I guess we had walked about a mile along the bones when we found her uncle's airship. It was blackened and twisted and smacked down among a rib cage that looked like the frame of a large ship. The man I had seen before, the one who had been driving the craft, was still in it though some creature had been at him, had actually sucked the flesh from his head and face. But it was him. I could tell that, if I had any doubts, Gerald dismantled them. She drew her sword and cut off his fleshless head and kicked it into the pile of bones. Traitor, she said. I saw then, not only the most beautiful woman I had fallen in love with, but the warrior, and it frightened me a little. The question, I said, is where is your uncle? Wait, look there. A little further up, among the bones, were the erect bodies of the several birdmen, blackened and twisted and scorched by fire. The lightning hit them the same as us, I said. Maybe your uncle was killed. But we did not locate his body. Perhaps a beast had found him. 
but it was also possible that he was journeying on foot to the kingdom of the Varnan. This means we might actually catch up with him, I said. Before long, I spied his tracks in the soft soil, pointed them out. Gerald could find Varnan without attracting her uncle, though it was him and the talisman we wanted, so the tracks were encouraging. It was near night when we finally passed a lengthy stack of bones. We edged towards the forest. The trees, low down and high up, were full of ravaging beasts, but the open land worried me most. Any one, or any thing, could easily spot us there. Edging along the trees, moving swiftly and carefully as possible, we were taken back by the sudden appearance of half a dozen beasts with men mounted on them. My fear had been realized. They spotted us. The beasts they were riding looked remarkably like horses. If horses could have horns and were shorter and wider with red and white stripes. They were guided in a way similar to horses as well, bits and bridles, long, thin reins. The riders were seated in high-set saddles, and as they came closer, it became apparent they were not human at all. Humans have flesh, but these things had something else. The skin was yellow like Gerald's skin, but it was coarse and gave one the impression of an alligator hide. They had flaring scales around their necks. Their features were generally human-like, but their noses were flat as a coin, little more than two small holes. Their foreheads slanted, and when the top of their heads peaked, their mouths were wide and packed with stained teeth, and their round eyes were red and full of fiery licks of light. They were carrying long lances tipped with the bright tips of metal. Short swords with bone handles bounced in scabbards at their hips. Closer yet, I saw there were little glowing parasites flowing over their skin like menus in a creek. Gerald said, Galmanians, they are eaters of human flesh, robbers. They run in packs, and they smell. They came ever closer. Gerald was right. They did smell, like something dead left under a house. Ah, said the foremost rider, reining his mount directly in front of us. The others sat in a row behind him, smiling their filthy teeth. Travelers, and such a good day for it. It is, Gerald said. We thought a stroll would be nice. The one who had spoken laughed. The laugh sounded like ice cracking. And he had a particular way of turning his head from side to side, as if one eye were bad. When the sunlight shifted, I saw that was exactly the problem. He was blind that eye. No red flecks there. It was white as the first drifts of snow in the Rockies. How is your stroll? said Deadeye. It's been warm, and it's quite the hike, Gerald said. But it has been amusing. It has been so good to speak to you. We must be on our way. We wish you good day. Do you now? said Deadeye. He turned in his saddle and looked back at his companions. They wish us good day. The companions laughed that similar laugh, the one that sounded like ice cracking, then made leathery shifts in their saddles. It's good to see we're all in such a cheery mood, Gerald said. When did I turn back to us, he said, I am cheery because we are going to kill you and eat you and take your swords. But mainly we're going to kill you and eat you. Maybe we'll start eating you while you're alive. Of course we will. That's how we like it. The screams are loud and the blood is hot. 
You will dance on the tip of my sword, I said. That is what you will do. And what are you exactly? said Deadeye. A black man. I can see that. Were you burnt? By the fires of hell. Perhaps you would like a taste of hell itself. What is hell? I had wasted my wit. Never mind, I said. Let us pass, or... I will dance on the tip of your sword, did I said. Exactly, I said. What about the rest of us, he said. Shall they dance as well? I suppose that between our two swords that will be dancing partners for all of you. This really got a laugh. He is not joking, said Gerald. We will be the judge of that, did I said. For we are not jokesters either. Oh, I don't know, I said. You look pretty funny to me. My comment was like the starter shot. They came in as one in a wild charge. Gerald and I worked as one. We seemed to understand the other's next move. We dodged into the trees and the Galmanians followed. The trees made it difficult for them to maneuver their beasts, but we moved easily. I sprang high in the air and came down to the rider nearest me with a slash of my sword, severing his head, spurting warm blood from his body like a gush from a fountain. Gerald lunged from behind a tree, and avoiding the ducking horned head from one of the mounts, stuck it in the chest. With a bleeding sound, it stumbled and fell, rolled about kicking its legs, tumbling over the fallen rider, crushing him with a snap of bone and a crackle of bumpy skin. That was when Deadeye swung off his steed and came for me, driving his lance directly at my chest. I moved to the side, parried his lance with my sword. The tip of his weapon stuck deep in a tree, and the impact caused him to lose his footing. When he fell, it was never to rise again. I bounded to him and drove my sword deep in his throat. He squirmed like a bug stuck through by a pin. His wide eye widened. He half spun on my sword, spat a geyser of blood, shook, and lay still. The others fled like deer. Are you all right? she asked. I am, and believe it or not, I said, fortune has smiled on us. For Gerald, riding one of the beasts was uncomfortable, and she rode awkwardly. For me, it was like being back in the cavalry. I felt in control. The creatures handled very similar to horses, though they seemed smarter. That said, they had a gait similar to mules, making for a less smoother ride. You call this fortune? Gerald said. If your uncle is on foot, yes, I said. As we rode on, in front of us the clearing went away and a mountain range rose before us. It was at first a bump, then a hump, and finally we could see it for what it was. The mountain was covered in dark clouds and flashes of lightning, all of it seemed to be the sound of rumbling thunder. The badges of forest that climbed up the mountain were blacker than the trees that gave the Black Hills of Dakotas their name. The day moved along, the sun shifted, and so did the shadows. They fell out of the forest and grew longer, thicker, cooler, and darker. A few of the shiny bugs came out. We shifted into the woods, found a spot where the old wood had fallen, and made a kind of hut of trees and limbs. We dismounted and led our animals inside through a gap. I found some dead wood and pulled it in the front of the opening. 
I chopped a lean but strong limb off a tree with my sword and used it to stretch from one side of our haven to the other. On one side of it I placed our mounts, the limb serving as a type of coral. After removing their saddles and bridles, I used bits of rope from the bag of supplies we had brought from the wreck of the sled to hobble them, a trick Gerald had never seen before. Finally, we stretched out on our side of the barrier with our clerks as our beds. We lay there and talked, and you would have thought we had known each other forever. In time, the nightwings were out. They flew down low and we could hear their wings sweeping past where we were holed up. Many of the bugs outside slipped in between the gaps of fallen wood and made our little room, such as it was, glow with shimmering light. Gerald and I came together at some point, and anything beyond that is not for a gentleman to tell. I will say this, and excuse a dime novel feel to it. My soul soared like a hawk. Next morning we were up early, just after the night wings and the glowing bugs abandoned the sky. We saddled up and rode on out. From time to time I got down off my critter and checked the ground, found signs of our quarry's tracks, remounted, and we continued. By the middle of the day we had reached the mountains and were climbing up, riding a narrow trail between the great dark trees. The weather had shifted. The dark clouds, the lightning and thunder had flown. As we rode from time to time, I saw strange beasts watching us from the shadows of the forest, but we were not bothered and continued on. Late in the day, I got down and looked at our mount's tracks, and they were fresh. Our mounts were giving us a final edge on this head start. He is not far ahead, I said, swinging back into the saddle. Good, then I will kill him. Maybe you could just arrest him. Arrest him? Take him prisoner. No, I will kill him and take back the talisman. I figured she would too. The trail widened and so did our view. Up there in the mountains, nowhere near its peak, but right there in front of us at the far end of the wide trail, we could see the city of the birdmen. The great trees there had grown, or become groomed, to twist together in a mountainous white of leaves and limbs and mixed into them was a rock fortress that must have taken thousands of birdmen and a good many years to build. It was like a castle and a nest blended together with the natural formations of the mountain. In places it was rumbling, in others tight as a drum. I said, Before we come any closer, we had best get off this trail and stick up on our man. If we can jump him before he enters the city, then that's the best way, and if he is inside already, well... It's going to be difficult, to put it mildly. Gerald nodded, and just as we rode off the trail and entered the dark forest, a horde of birdmen came down from the sky and into the thicket with a screech and a flash of swords. Surprised, we whirled on our mounts and struck out at them. It was like swatting at yellow jackets. I managed to stick one of the creatures and cause him to fall dead, but as he fell, his body struck me and knocked me off my mount. I hustled to my feet as Gerald ducked a sword swing, but was hit in the head with the passing hilt of the sword. She fell off her beast and onto her back and didn't move. I went savage. I remember very little about what happened after that, but I was swinging my sword with both skill and insane fury. Birdman lost wings and limbs and faces and skulls. My sword stabbed and slashed and shattered. I was wet and hot with the blood of my enemies. 
To protect themselves, they flapped their wings, lifted up higher, and dove, but they were never quick enough and were hindered by the thickness of the trees, and my speed was beyond measure. I leaped and dodged, parried and thrust. I raged among the flapping demons like a lion among sheep. Finally, it was as if all the birdmen in the world appeared. Sky darkened above me, and the darkness fell over me, and down they came in a fluttering wave of screeches and sword slashes and axe swings. I was a crazed dervish. I spun and slung my blade like the reaper's scythe, and once again they began to pile up, but then I was struck in the head from the side, and as I tumbled to the ground, I thought it was the end of me. I couldn't have been down but for a moment when I felt a blade at my throat and heard a voice say, No, bring him. Gerald and I were lifted and carried. My sword was gone. I was bleeding. I saw walking before the pack of birdmen, Tordo, Gerald's traitorous uncle. We were hoisted out of the forest and onto the trail, carried up toward the amazing twists of forest and stone. As we neared, I saw small clouds of smoke rising from stone chimneys, and in loops of groomed limbs I saw large nests made of vines and sticks and all manner of refuse. The nests were wide open, but they were built under the great limbs and leaves of the trees that served as a roof. Beyond them there was an enormous tree, the biggest I had seen on my world or this one, and there was a gap in it that served as an opening into the city proper. A great drawbridge had been dropped, and it stretched out over a gap between the trees and mountains, and the gap was wide and deep beyond comprehension. Over the drawbridge we were carried, and into the great fortress of wood and stone. My first thought was that Gerald was already dead and I was next, and let me tell you true as a direction north, I didn't care if I died. Were Gerald lost? I wished to die. As it turned out, I didn't die. And neither did Gerald. I didn't realize she was alive until we found ourselves in the bowels of the fortress in a prison that was deep inside the cave of a tree. The series of metal bars served as our doorway. Looking through the bars, I could see a long corridor that was also the inside of a tree, and there were two guards nearby, one with a lance, one with an axe, both with expressions that would make a child cry. In our cell, they dropped us down on some limbs and leaves that served as beds. There was a particular odor. The only thing I can equate it with is the smell of a henhouse on a hot, damp afternoon. I knelt over Gerald, lifted her head gently. My love, I said. My head hurts, she said. The sound of her voice elated me. I guess so. You took quite a lick. She sat up slowly. Are you okay? I got about myself, behind the ear. She gingerly touched it with the tips of her fingers. Ow, she said. My sentiments exactly. What I don't understand is why they didn't kill us. I think, in my case, my uncle wants me to see the ceremony. What ceremony? The linking of the two halves of the talisman. The acquisition of the greatest power on our planet. He wants me to see what he's achieved before he puts me to death. Wants me to know if the deed is done, and I have failed to prevent it. Then we die. If you ain't dead, you're living, and that's a good thing, I said. It took her a moment to take that in. It was as if whatever power I allowed my words to be translated into her language had lost to be. After a moment, she laughed her musical laugh. I think I understand. We won't give up until we're beyond considering on the matter one way or the other. I said, I love you, Jack, 
she said, and I you. We allowed ourselves a kiss, yet in spite of my bravado, in spite of the repeating of my old sergeant's words, I feared it might be our last. Love is a wonderful steed, said a voice. Ride it as long as you can. We looked up, and there above us, sitting on a ridge of stone, was a birdman, his feet dangling. He looked youngish, if I can claim any ability of judging the age of a man who looks like a giant chicken across the body of a man. A very weak-looking chicken. He appeared near starved to death. His head hung weak, his ribs showed. His legs were skinny as sticks, but there was still something youthful about him. Who are you? I asked. It wasn't a brilliant question, but it was all I had. Guard on, he said, and dropped off the ledge, his wings taking hold with the fanning of air. He settled down near us, his legs weak and shaky. He sat down on the floor, his head sagged and sighed. I am a prisoner, same as you. Gardon, Gerald said. The former king's son, his heir. That was how it was supposed to be, but no longer. I was usurped. Canrat, said Gerald. Yes, Gardon said. Now he is king, and I am here, awaiting the moment when he is able to require the rest of the talisman. And from what I overheard, that moment has arrived. Yes, Gerald said, for all of us. I am Gerald, Princess of Sheldon. Gardon lifted his head, took a deep breath, said, I know of you. I am sorry for your fate and his. Jack, I said. I am called Jack. I shall go out as a prince, Gardon said. I will not beg. My horror is not in my death, but what the two horrors of the talisman can do. Canrad will possess immense power. What does this power do? I asked. We only have legend to explain it to us. It gives him the power over the spirits and demons from the old trees. The old trees, I said. Giant trees that contain spirits of power, Gerald said. Those kinds of trees no longer exist. They cease to exist before I was born, before my father was born, his grandfather, and so on. The spirits are contained in the two halves of the talisman. Canrad will be able to control the people then, Gordon said. They, like my father and myself, were perfectly happy without trees treaty. Only insane being wants war. The people only follow Canrad because they fear him. All the uprisings have been destroyed, all the participants have gone into hiding. After today, they might as well never have existed, for he will control everyone and anyone with his new powers. He will not be able to be defeated. But you don't actually know how he will do that, I asked. I have only heard the legend, Godon said. The power of the spirits, the demons of the trees, exactly what they are capable of, I do not know. Our people have always feared the talisman, and knowing now that it will be united, no one will resist him, it would be useless. There was a clatter of sound in the hallway. Godon stood weakly and said, It seems you are about to find out the exactness of the talisman's power. They came for us, unlocking our cell, entering quickly. 
to be sure if I compliant until there's a horde of them with long spikes and strong nets and an angry attitude. I managed to hit one with my fist, knocking him to the floor in a swirl of dust and feathers. Gerald kicked another. Godon tried to fight, but he was weak as a dove. They netted the three of us, bagged us, kicked us a while, and hauled us away like chap vermin being taken to the lake to be drowned. We were brought into a large throne room, like that of the overhaul stronghold that was made of stone and was encombed with the natural strength of trees and limbs and leaves. Enormous branches jutted out from the walls high above our heads, and perched on them like a murder of ravens or birdmen and birdwomen, the first females I'd seen of that race. An occasional feather drifted down from above, coasted in the light. Above that perch on which the birdmen were seated was a tight canopy of leaves, so thick and laid it would have taken an army of strong warriors many days to hack through with it. Actually, I'm not even sure they could do it in years. They brought us in and held us close to the floor in our nets. We could see through the gaps in the netting. Besides the bird people on the limbs above, the throne room was packed with others, some of them warriors, many of them nobles, and some citizens. We were the spectacle, and all of the bird people had been summoned to witness whatever ceremony was at hand. I assumed it would not be a parade in our honour. On a dais was a throne, and on the throne was a large-winged man who looked like an ancient human being, fat of body, thin of legs, with a head like a walked melon, had been mated to a condor and a buzzard, all of them swathed over with warts and scars and age. A golden cloak draped his shoulders, and except for a half-talisman on a chain around his neck, he wore nothing else. His eyes were dark and the colour of old, dried pine sap. This, of course, was King Canrad. Tordor stood near the throne, one hand on its back support. There were guards on either side of King Canrad and Tordo. The room was full of warriors as well. Canrad nodded at Tordo. Tordor stepped from the centre of the dais, removed his half of the talisman from his neck, and lifted it up with both hands. Sunlight coming through an open gap behind the king glittered across the talisman like sunlight on a trout's back. What say you? said the king. The crowd cheered. It sounded like the sort of cheese we buffalo soldiers used to give a lieutenant when he rode by on horseback. A white man who led us like we couldn't lead ourselves, as if our colour tainted our intelligence. It was a cheer, but it came from the mouth, not the soul. The king said, The old order is here. Gardon, son of the former king, who was not worthy and shall not be named, is also here. He will see how a true king shows his power. It is you who is not worthy, Gardon called from his netted position on the floor. Strike him, said the king. One of the warriors stepped forward and brought the staff of his spear sharply across Gardon's back. Gardon grunted. We have also among us a daughter of King Ran of the Sheldon, said the king, and a rather inferior race in my opinion. At a black man thing that I cannot define, nor can anyone else, and we have three enemies of the throne. The gods will welcome their deaths. They will be the first to die by the power of the talisman. I will call up all the demons of the trees and will render these worthless creatures into wet rags. I know your law, Gerald said, pushing herself to her knees under the net. I ask my right to challenge you, or your second. 
If I win, our lives will be spared. I am too old to be challenged, said the king. I have no intention of selling myself with a duel, nor will I sully one of my men. Why should I? You have the right by our law to make a challenge, and I, as king, have the right to refuse. I refuse. Be silent. King Canrad leaned forward on his throne. I can almost hear his bones creak. His wings trembled slightly. He looked like a gargoyle rocking on a sledge. He said to Tordo, Bring me the power. Tordo hesitated, then moved toward him. King Conrad held out his hand. Give it to me. Tordo held his half of the talisman forward with his left hand, and as the king reached to take it, Tordo sprang forward, snatched at the talisman around the king's neck, yanked it loose of its chain. Links to the chain clattered on the floor as Tordo slammed the two pieces of the talisman together with a loud click. He lifted it above his head with a smile. He yelled out a series of words in incantation. I understood the words, but not their jumbled purpose. And then the spell was finished, and... Well, nothing. It was quiet in the throne room as a mouse in the house slippers. From somewhere in the crowd there was a cough, as if someone had a mouthful of feathers, which, considering who was in the room, could actually have been the case. Tordo's gleeful expression died slowly. He said a word that didn't translate, but I had an idea what it meant. He turned slowly and looked over his shoulder. He had gone from a potential wizard of the trees to a fool with two connected pieces of jewelry. The guards hustled up from the bottom of the dais, their spears ready, ready to stick Tordo. No, said the king. Give me the talisman first. One of the warriors tugged it from Toro's hands, removed his sword as well, gave the talisman to the king. The king held it in his hands. He looked at it in the way a fisherman might look at his catch, realizing it appeared much larger underwater. It is useless. It is a lie. He lifted his eyes to Toro. I will make your death a long one. While they were all so engaged and all eyes were on them, I lifted an edge of the net crawled out from under it and seized one of the birdmen. I drew his sword from his sheath and shoved him back. I sprang forward towards a dais. A warrior stepped in front of me, but I jabbed quickly and the sharp blade went through his eye and down he went. With my newfound abilities renewed, I leaped easily to the dais and put my sword to the king's throat. The guards on the other side of the throne started towards me. I said to the king, Give the order to free the lady and guard on, or I will run this thing through your throat. The king's body shook. Free them, he said. The net was lifted. The warriors around them parted. I noticed there was a rearranging of soldiers. Some of them shifted out of one group and into the other. It was a good sign. They were showing their division. I said, those who wish the king well, fear the point of my sword. Those who wish him ill, perhaps you would enjoy my sword thrust. We shall see which is more popular. There was a slight murmur. By this time, Gerald and Garden had joined me on the dais. They stood near me and the king. Gerald picked up the pike of the guard I had killed. Toto hadn't moved. He feared to move. Garden said, I am your king. I am the son of the true king who was the son of the king and the king before that. 
Today the talisman failed Canrad and Tordo. The spirits within do not wish their will to succeed. They do not wish their powers to be used for something so pointless as killing and destruction and war. It is peace they want. It is peace they have allowed. And I suggest we obey their will and continue on that path, lest someone turn on us and destroy them all. Someone said, Guard on our king. A moment later this was repeated. Then someone else said the same, and all the voices rose up from the crowd and filled the room, and the voices came not from the mouths of the frightened, but from the souls of the true believers. There were a few who for a moment seemed unwilling to make the change to guard on, but they were vastly outnumbered, and those who tried to befriend Canrad were quickly dispatched in a wave of bloody anger. If there was a lesson to be learned from Garnod's remarks about the talisman, they hadn't actually learned it, which meant that bird people were as human as a wingless. They were not ready to accept the talisman was nothing more than an ancient myth. Garnod took the talisman, held it up as Torda had done. It was still weak and struggled to hold it aloft, but his spirit was strong. He spoke so loudly his words could be heard at the back of the room and up into the leaf canopy. The power of the talisman would remain unused. Half of it would go back to the Princess Gerald, back to her city and her king, where it will continue to remain powerless and our peace will continue. What of him? said a bird woman, sipping forward to point out a long finger at Tordo. Garlon turned his head to Tordo, studied him. He was about to speak when Gerald beat it to him. Gardon, king of the Varnan, she said, I ask you to sanction my right to combat with Tordo. He has stolen from my family, he has insulted my family, and I desire to insult him with the edge of my blade. And if you lose, said Gardon, I won't, Gerald said. But if I do, let him go, banish him. Don't do this, I said. Let me take your place. I am as good a warrior as any other, my love. Very well, Gardon said. But before that... He turned to the former King Kenrad. I banish you. As from now, you will rise and you will go away and you will never come back. The old man rose. And in that moment, seeing how weak he was, I almost felt sorry for him. Then a blade came out from just under his cloak, and he stabbed at Gardon. I caught Canrod's arm just in time, twisted. It snapped easily. He screeched and dropped the dagger. I let him go. Gardon leaned forward and looked into Canrod's eyes. I see emptiness. Gardon weakly picked up the dagger Canrod had dropped. He seemed strong all of a sudden. It will not matter what I do, Canrod. You are dead already. With that, he jammed the blade into the former king's chest. The old man collapsed in a cloaked wad, and immediately a pool of blood flowed around him. Give Tordo a sword, Gardon said, turning back to the situation at hand. Death is your loss, Tordo. Banishment is your victory. Gerald dropped the pike and was given a sword. Tordo was given a sword. Of all the disappointment of the moment, every foul thing he was bubbled up and spewed out of him. He attacked with a yell. He bounced on the balls of his feet, attempting to stick Gerald. Gerald glided back as if walking on air. Everyone on the dice moved wide of their blades as they battled back and forth, the throne sometimes coming between them. 
Once you're all slipped in Canrad's blood, and in spite of this being a private duel, I almost leap to her aid, but Cardon touched me on the arm. It is not done, you said. Dorado put one boot on Canrad's lifeless neck and used it as a kind of support to lift him up and give him more of a downward thrust. But Gerald slipped the lunge. Dorado sprang off Canrad's lifeless neck and made a beautiful thrust to her face. I let out a gasp of air. He was right on target. At the last moment, Gerald dropped under his thrust, which lifted the hair on her head slightly and drove her weapon up into his belly. He held his position, as if waiting for his form to be admired, then made a noise like an old dog with a kitchen bone in its throat and fell flat on his face. Blood poured out of him and flowed into the puddle of gore that had fanned from out between Conrad. Gerald studied the corpse of Tora for a moment. She took a deep breath and said, I have drawn my kin's own blood, but I have avenged Toro's treachery and honored my father. Gardon stepped forward and surveyed the crowd. He lifted his chin slightly. The response to this was another cheer from the multitude, and this was more than one from the throat. It was deep from within the soul. There were great celebrations, and we were part of it. It was pleasant and necessary to the new agreement between kingdoms, but I was glad when it ended and we were given back the mounts we'd taken from the Convenience and sent on our way with supplies, fanfare, and, of course, Joel's half the talisman. As we rode among the wide trail of morning light, winding down from the great lair of the bird people, I said, Do you ever think Gardon's people believed what they said about the talisman? Perhaps they did, Joel said. Perhaps some did. Perhaps none did. The only thing that matters is when there was no great power when the true pieces were united. It's just a legend. Designed to prevent war from your people and theirs, I said. That seems like a legend worth believing. The halves of a great power divided so neither has a unique and overwhelming power over the other. Devil would have been amused, she said. We experienced a few minor adventures on our way back to Joel's kingdom. We experienced a few adventures on our way back to Joel's kingdom, but they were minor, mostly involved with brigands that we dispatched with little effort, and a few encounters with wild beasts. When we arrived on the land of Sheldon and Joel explained all that had happened to her father, I was afforded much curiosity, mostly due to the color of my skin. I was thanked, I was rewarded with a fine sword and scabbard. I was thanked. I was rewarded with a fine sword and scabbard. I was given a prominent place at King Rand's table, and it was there that Gerald told him we were to marry. It was the first I had heard of it, but I was delighted with the idea. That was some time ago. I am sitting now at a writing desk in a great room in the Sheldon Castle made of clay and stone. It is dark except for a small candle. I am writing with a feather pen on a yellow parchment. My wife, the beautiful warrior Jarl, sleeps not far away in our great round bed. Tonight, before I rose to write, I dreamed, as I have the last three nights. In the dream, I was being pulled down a long, bright tunnel, and finally into the cold, dark waters of the Atlantic, washing about in the icy waves like a cork. The great light of a ship moved my way, and in the shadows of that light were the bobbing heads of dying swimmers and the bouncing of titanic human-stuffed rafts. The screams of the desperate, the crying of the dying filled the air. 
I have no idea what the dream means or if it means anything, but each night that I experience it, it seems a little clearer. Tonight there was another part to it. A glimpse of thing that brought me here, pulled me down and through that lit tunnel to Venus. I fear it wishes to take me back. I finish this with no plans of its being read, and without complete understanding as to why I feel compelled to have written it. But written, it is. Now I'll put down my pen and parchment away, blow out the candle, lie gently down beside my love, hoping I will never be forced to leave her side, and that she, in this world, will be mine forever. There you go, <laughs> Big thank you. Big, I think big thank you for to Jeremy to give us the mic here, man, for God's sake. And Joe, what can I say? A massive thank you. Honestly, thank you so much. means a lot to have, have you on the show. Thank you. So, next up is straight in. Straight in with our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. And today I'd like to do something a bit different. I'd like to talk about a couple of films from film history that may indeed have direct relationship to forthcoming genre developments. Now, before I get into this very deeply, I do want to say this is going to be a spoiler-free episode, at least with regard to forthcoming genre news. And in fact, I'm going to leave all of the speculation to you. So if you are avoiding upcoming genre news, well, don't worry. I'm not going to be spoiling anything for you or suggesting theories that you won't be able to unsee once you've seen them. So as you have no doubt noticed, I am fully enjoying the new renaissance of the Star Wars saga. Part of that is because I am a lifelong Star Wars fan. Part of that is because I write and do research about Star Wars. Part of that is because I teach Star Wars. In fact, I'm getting ready to teach for the third semester in a row my course, The Force of Star Wars, Examining the Epic, for both undergraduate and graduate students. And that experience really is a gift that keeps on giving. And I find myself continually revitalized by the interest and excitement and energy coming from the students. So looking ahead to what will be unfolding here in the next year or two with Star Wars, something in particular came to my attention that I wanted to look into a bit more deeply. And again, no spoilers here and no speculation. As you may know, Ryan Johnson has been brought on board to write and direct Episode 8 of Star Wars and also write the treatment for Episode 9. And back in July of 2014, during a Skype interview with Film Spotting, he mentioned that he and his crew were preparing for Episode 8, which of course is now, as I record this, well underway in terms of shooting, by watching specific movies for the particular inspiration they could provide, directly relevant to the forthcoming Star Wars film. And I was very interested in this. I do consider myself to be something of a film buff, but I will be the first to admit that my film knowledge is narrow and deep as opposed to broad and wide. There are a couple of genres I'm very, very interested in, and so I try to watch everything and understand the history and the development and such. My husband and I have a theater room in our house that is devoted solely to movie viewing, and we have film 
posters all over the walls. But again, it is a very kind of specific interest uh, that I have in particular, again, quite narrow. In, in terms of my own knowledge, there are lots of genres I don't know very much about at all. If I haven't followed one of the screenwriters or directors or composers or actors that I follow into anything, no matter where they went, regardless of the category of film, well, there are certain genres I just don't know much about at all. So when I was looking at the movies that Ryan Johnson particularly pointed out as movies that had a direct impact on Episode Eight, the forthcoming Star Wars film, I was anxious to know if I had seen them and if I could draw some conclusions from knowing what they were. Now, before I talk about those films, I do want to pause and say that a tremendous resource for understanding the impact of film history on Star Wars is a series of essays posted at StarWars.com, mostly written by Brian Young. These essays deal with the films that impacted the existing Star Wars saga of storytelling, and I highly recommend going to StarWars.com and searching for the Cinema Behind Star Wars essays. They look at some of the usual suspects and some of the unusual films, films you might not think of as contributing to Star Wars storytelling. Brian Young covers works like, uh, well, The Influence of Casablanca, the Academy Award-winning Best Picture of 1942, on the Moss Isley Space Cantina, and for that matter, Humphrey Bogart's Rick on Harrison Ford's Han Solo, in the first Star Wars film, Episode Four, as it's now known, A New Hope. There is also work on, for example, the 1955 British film The Dam Busters, and how its depiction of warfare influenced the trench run attack against the original Death Star in the first Star Wars film. There are lots of others covered, including westerns, science fiction films, historical films, and others, and how they have contributed in some way or another, inspired aspects of Star Wars storytelling. So this is not a new topic, a new idea, that pre-existing films inform and contribute to the storytelling of Star Wars. Okay, so let's get back to what Ryan Johnson said about two of the films in particular that he was showing to his crew in preparation for filming Episode Eight. I was very excited to hear what these movies were, and as it turned out, I had heard of only one of them, and I had seen neither of them. I have since then corrected this, and seen both of them, and I'd like to talk about them a bit. Uh, the first that he mentioned was 12 O'Clock High, a 1949 U.S. war film. The focus of the movie is the air crews in the U.S. Army's 8th Air Force. They flew daylight bombing missions against both Nazi Germany and occupied France during the very, very first days of U.S. involvement in World War II. The movie was based on a novel from 1948, also called Twelve O'Clock High, written by Cy Bartlett and Bernie Lay Jr. The two of them, along with Henry King, who was not credited for his involvement, adapted the novel into the screenplay, and it starred Gregory Peck, Gary Merrill, 
Dean Jagger, who would go on to win an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role, and Hugh Marlowe. Hugh Marlowe is familiar to me because he stares back at me from a couple of the posters in our theater room at home from The Day the Earth Stood Still in 1951 and Earth vs. the Flying Saucers in 1956. And I will admit, Hugh Marlowe did sort of steal the film for me when I watched it. He did an amazing performance. The film also earned an Academy Award for Thomas T. Moulton for Best Sound Recording, and it was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And it notes in its opening credits that some of the film of the dogfights, the, the actual planes in the air during the movie, were taken from real original footage shot during wartime. Those of you who know much about George Lucas's inspirations for the original Star Wars films know that he was a big fan of World War II films and used a lot of cobbled-together, edited-together footage of dogfights and such uh, in order to give inspiration to the special effects creators who made the special effects for Star Wars. And that's why, in fact, a lot of the action in the Star Wars films, think of the X-Wing dogfights here, for example, look very much like World War II fights. But what's interesting about 12 O'Clock High is that it's much more a psychological film than it is a film about the daring do of pilots in the air. The film focuses on the 918th bomber group that got the reputation of being essentially a hard luck group. They suffered from poor morale, in part because the men became so close to their commanding officer that it was hard to enforce discipline. So the powers that be remove that commander and put another in his place who is the hard-nosed commander who doesn't care if he's unpopular as long as he gets his men into shape. And in fact, he does. And they create a different kind of sense of identity and become what they need to be in order to get the job done. But the ending note of the film is the tremendous psychological toll suffered by that hard-nosed commander, who is played by Gregory Peck, who by the end really suffers what's essentially a breakdown. He's carried this group, and the stress of bringing this group together, taken that wholly on his shoulders, and like the commander before him, really come to care for the men under his command. Men he has to send into impossible situations, quite likely to their deaths, and so the stress of all of that causes him to break by the end, and he only comes out of a kind of catatonia after uh, a mission is completed and his men have returned. So there's a lot there about the dynamics of leadership and the cost of leadership and also questions of morale and discipline and personal loyalty holding together a group uh, that feels like they're fighting against insurmountable odds and quite possibly fighting suicidal missions. And I think that's going to be uh, very interesting to see how those themes play out in the next, the next Star Wars film. 
if, in fact, they do. All right, the second film that Ryan Johnson named is the 1959 Soviet film, Drama Adventure, directed by legendary Russian director Mikhail Kolodazov, called Letter Never Sent. That's also sometimes translated as The Unsent Letter or The Unmailed Letter. And that starred Russian actress Tatyana Samoylova, who also starred in Kolodazov's most applauded film, The Cranes Are Flying. And wow, what a film Letter Never Sent is. It is stark, black and white, spare, and haunting in its visuals. It's a movie about a guide and three geologists who head into central Siberia, into the forest, in order to look for diamonds. Using state-of-the-art science, they are searching, and of course, if they find the diamonds, they will be great heroes of the Soviet state. While they're there in this wilderness forest all by themselves, and there are some interesting dynamics among them, two of the geologists are in love with each other, there is a third fellow who is interested in the woman who does not share his interest, and so there's a weird kind of triangle-slash-sexual tension-slash-threat uh, angle going on there. They are trapped by a forest fire that cuts them off from their supplies, that cuts them off from the transportation that got them in there in the first place, and it becomes a story of humans against the environment trying to survive during this natural catastrophe. And one by one, these four, who don't necessarily fully trust each other, although they really have to, they have to come to trust each other, well, one by one, they lose that battle to survive. There are some really remarkable visuals here. The forest burning around them. Really incredible. But the thing that struck me most, again, it's psychological, is the idea of being completely cut off and unable to speak to would-be rescuers, to communicate to loved ones. The, the unsent letter of the title is a letter that one of the characters is constantly writing to his wife. And the part that really stuck with me most after watching it is these characters lugging around this huge radio system, which is inoperable. They cannot get their messages out. But they can hear there would-be rescuers updating them about the search efforts to find them. So they hear where these airplanes are flying, they hear where the sections are open and sections are closed because of the fire. They are assured over and over again that they are heroes and that everyone wants their safe return. But of course, they can't get the word out where they are, how desperately they need uh, medical attention and food and water. And so it's this voice going out into the void and they're hearing it, but they can't in any way show that they have received those messages. And eventually they just dump the, the radio. Not unlike 12 o'clock high, you're dealing with the stress 
the unnatural situation in which these people are put in a crisis moment when finishing an assigned task, when watching out for one's comrades, when trying to survive and live to to go back and, and do another day, that's really brought to a boiling pitch by the unnatural intensity of the situation and the tremendous odds against which uh, these individuals are pitted. Or to put it a different way, these films are both about underdogs who are squaring off against tremendous forces, whether that's the enemy in the sky or its nature on the ground. Part of the fight is mental, getting themselves in the position to face those odds, and part of it is related to the relationships they have with the others, the, the small team with which they're working, on whom they have to rely. And while both films have tremendous, remarkable footage, whether that's the aerial footage from 12 O'Clock High, or it's the footage of the massive fires in Letter Never Sent, the story is really one, an, an intimate one, of a handful of characters and how they are going to deal with and hopefully come through the crisis they find themselves in. I highly recommend watching or re-watching, if you're already familiar with these films, both of them, and thinking about what these stories might mean in terms of how they might inspire the larger storytelling of the Star Wars saga. Consider this your invitation to speculate on Episode 8 if you are so inclined. And with that, I thank you and would like to say I look forward to joining you again very soon for another look back into genre history. There you go. Amy, thank you so much. What can I say? Oh, 10 year, man. 10 year. Thank you. So that is show 440 put to bed. Like I say, we're soon coming, you know, where we're kind of moving over and hopefully adverts in. And we've got some exciting news. Two little bits of exciting news coming coming soon, hopefully, you know, so stick around for that. Don't forget, you know, yes, we kind of, we've got with Patreon. Chuck us a few dimes in there. That will be fantastic. Keeps the whole network running. That will be lovely. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.